Hello, this is Eric Bryant, pastor at Gateway Church in South Austin. If you want more resources, including the notes from this message, go to ericbryant.org. Or to find out more about our community, go to gatewaychurch.com south. It's really fun to celebrate what God has done over these last 20 years, and many of us are standing on the shoulders of others in this room and others who have been giving generously and willingly serving throughout the years. And, and what could God do over these next 20 years through us? If a small group of people could have that kind of impact over these last 20 years, what could we do? I have to tell you, uh, watching video from 1998, it doesn't... It doesn't uh, translate well. <laughs> Some of you weren't even born then. And uh, it's all grainy, right? I mean, I, I, it reminds me of when I used to watch I Love Lucy when I was a kid. It's like, oh, it's from another era. 1998 is like another era. It, it was funny, the newscaster too, Gateway Church is trying to lure in these 20-year-olds, right? <laughs> Sounds very creepy. I don't know if that helped us or hurt us. But what we're talking about in this season is that Jesus actually changes the world through willing people, through you and me, that we are invited to become people who have a mindset, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're invited to be willing participants of what God wants to do in and through us in this world. And it's amazing what God has done and what he wants to continue to do. And it's a, it's a transition. You see, many of us grew up in a context of religion and obligation and rules, and, and that's not what Jesus invites us to. He invites us into a transformation to be willing to move into this new way of living. But the problem with religion and obligation and rules is it actually can do damage. And some of us have been victims of churchianity. We're reluctantly here because of what people in the name of Christianity have done or how they've lived their life. And so last week we looked at what Jesus was trying to do and what he has done is create a new kingdom, an invisible kingdom that advances not by force or oppression or obligation, but made up of a new family of women and men from every background whose hearts are willing to follow him no matter where it may lead, inviting us into a relationship and Jesus' willingness was a radical and sacrificial willingness to the point where he gave up heaven and, and lived among us. But the story doesn't end at Christmas. It doesn't end with the eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus that Ricky Bobby describes and prays to. That's a part of the miracle that God would come and live among us, but he grew up to, to live a perfect life and to bring healing, the miraculous, to those around him and ultimately willingly dying on the cross, taking on himself the evils of humanity, our evil. But he did not remain in the tomb. He rose from the dead. But when it all began, there was all sorts of prophecies that were talking of this rescuer, the Messiah that was to come. And as I mentioned last week, his name, Yeshua, in Hebrew means salvation. You can read the Hebrew scriptures and you can see his name over and over and over. Salvation, salvation, salvation. It's often translated as Joshua in English, but over the years, his name has come to be Jesus in English. 
But listen to what happened. Eight days after Jesus was born, kind of picking up the story from last week, notice what happened. It was eight days after Christmas, after Jesus was born, and Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple, as was the custom. And in the temple was a man named Simeon, an old man, who God had whispered years before, Simeon, before you die, you will see your Yeshua, your salvation, the Messiah. So here it is, Luke 2. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. See, God's great gift for the Gentiles, for all the nations, the Messiah, salvation coming from the Jews, that gift was costly. Eventually, Mary would see her son crucified. It was like piercing her very soul, watching her son die. But God would change the world because of his willingness, this costly gift. I mean, if you think about it, what's the most any human can give? It's, it's our very lives. But in giving up everything, did Jesus really lose anything? In fact, he gained a new family that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord could experience a new relationship with him. He changed the world, his impact beyond what any other person who's ever lived. He became the greatest for all eternity. In John 3.16, a great verse that summarizes the message of Christmas, the message of the scriptures said that God so loved the world that he gave his son. See, God keeps on changing the world through his church, teaching us to be givers like he is a giver. I mean, that's why at Christmas we give gifts, right? You connect the dots. On the way to the mall, you're looking for that parking space and you're thinking, God, thank you for all the gifts you've given me. And it is because of your goodness that I am trying to find a parking spot at the mall. No, that's not what we usually think. We do not connect the dots. It's become Americana and tradition. And, and we end up angry, talking about how Christmas is so commercialized and we're just spending money going into debt. And I'm buying these people something they're just going to re-gift to someone else. Bah humbug. That's what we're thinking, Right? And so to help you, maybe you're having trouble buying gifts, I have a few ideas I want to share with you. Uh, if you have a teenage daughter, like I do, there's a great new product out. It's called Glop. I, I encourage you to pick that up. It's the teenage version of Goop, apparently. Or for my son, he loves hip-hop, so I'm going to buy him this shirt. It's a Yo Dog shirt. Or my wife, who serves all of us so hard and so often, I, I was thinking about getting her something like this. The dishes are looking at me dirty again. <laughs> or how about this one? You people must be exhausted from watching me do everything. <laughs> I think that'll inspire her, 
Or we talked about this a few weeks ago. You can put this in your guest bathroom, right there, showing people that the toilet paper roll goes over, not under. (laughs) So in this season of giving, it is easy to lose sight of why we even do this. But it began with God so loved the world. God so loved you. He so loved us that he gave everything. So then we give in honor of his giving, out of gratitude for what he's given us. See, Jesus changed the world by establishing a kingdom of love, a kingdom that operates differently, a different kind of economy than the world's economy. And people saw Jesus' followers as givers, while most people on our planet tend to be takers. That's the human default. But the evidence that God was doing something was through how they lived their lives. Listen to this amazing description of the early church. Acts chapter two. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. I want you to think about how remarkable this is. There is a a group of people who were the first on the planet to ever describe God as coming to live among us, dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Well, where did this God come from? Well, he was born of a virgin. They were the first people on the planet to share this story. And rather than being repelled by their beliefs, people were intrigued by their character. These people might have unusual beliefs, but look how generous they are. They helped my cousin out with rent. See, it's when the rubber meets the road, their generosity actually changed their perspective. In our culture, I know people who are known for praising God, but they are not also the ones who enjoy the favor of all the people. Somehow, these early followers of Jesus were known for their devotion to God and people liked them. Doesn't that seem oxymoronic? Like these two phrases shouldn't go together? Like cafeteria food or jumbo shrimp or Houston Rockets basketball. Like it just doesn't seem to go together. So the Astros won it all, right? As a Mavericks fan, you gotta give me this, right? But see, the problem is we were raised in a scarcity mentality. So even those of us who are followers of Jesus are inundated with the wrong way of thinking about generosity and giving. But when you become a follower of Jesus, you start to see things differently. That's what happened. This radical generosity among the early church actually changed the perspective of the people around them. They did not have a scarcity mentality, but an abundance mentality. See, a scarcity mentality leads you to become a taker. An abundance mentality leads you to become a giver. When we have a scarcity of resources, we are giving less and holding more. We operate from the world's economy. You know that in our history, we're the wealthiest nation that has ever existed, and yet, on average, Americans only give 2% of their income to charity. That includes to the church. You know, we were more generous as Americans during the Great Depression than we are now. 
And I think it's because we have a scarcity mentality. We were raised with a scarcity mentality. That's what the world teaches us. But see, when you start to enter into a relationship with God, you begin to discover that God is a giver. That Jesus came into the world to give because he didn't live under this world's economy. That actually it's an abundance mentality that God gives and gives and gave everything for us so that we might experience the fullness and abundant life that he has for that, for us. Notice Jesus' abundance mentality in Matthew chapter six. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. No one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. What if we could live that out as if this was true, not worrying about money, not holding on out of fear, See, Jesus invites us to live in God's kingdom of abundance right now. He has everything we need and more. We don't have to live with a hoarder, buried alive mentality. We don't have to worry and stress about the future. Now, if you've grown up in a scarcity economy, this whole idea of becoming generous can be threatening. You feel like God might just make you live on the bare necessities and and not provide for you. And and let me just acknowledge in this room that if you're here and you're not even sure about God, as we always say, when we do the offering, feel no obligation to give. We want you to hear, though, maybe insider conversation about what the scriptures actually say about our money, not what TV preachers say. Some of us come into this room with a, a real misunderstanding based on someone we may have caught on television. What we're inviting you into is something that Jesus invites us into, becoming people who are generous, known for our generosity. There was a passage of scripture that used to haunt me when I was growing up. It's this one, too much is given, much is required. Now later, Spider-Man's uncle said something similar, right? With great power comes great responsibility. And so it feels a little more palatable. But you may be thinking, but I'm not a superhero. (laughs) But what I've come to realize is, is having the kind of life that I've had, in spite of this wrong thinking, the scarcity mentality, in spite of the churchianity in which I grew up, I've discovered a relationship with God that is so different than what was described to me that I can live an abundant life, I can be a generous person that it is a gift that I've been given so much so that I can give to others. We are invited into the opportunity to make the world a better place. Don't let our scarcity mentality hold us back from that. The more I've grown to discover God's character, the more I realize he can be trusted. He is a giver. He knows how to give good gifts to his children way more than we do. God doesn't want to take from you 
because he doesn't need anything from us. We need to give for what it does in us, not because God needs our money. He's given us everything that we have. And we have to be living in this place at this time in history. Do you know that two-thirds of the world will never own a car or go to college? We've been given so much, and we have the opportunity to give back so much more. But the problem is we live with the scarcity mentality in our culture. Do you know that we always, no matter what you make, feel like we need 3% more than what we make? We spend 3% more than what we make, no matter what you make. We're like crabs. We, we just barely fit in that shell. And then once we get a bigger shell, we still somehow don't fit. But we can trust a God who provides. See, too often, even followers of Jesus don't live this kind of abundant life. We don't really trust Jesus in this area. Luke 6, Jesus said, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. For some reason, I always think of the movie Cocktail. Another 90s reference, right? Just this idea that it's bubbling over, that, that, that when we give, we can never outgive what God gives to us. So you're invited to understand God's new economy, God's kingdom ways, that there is a loving God who you can trust. You can trust his character. You can trust his promises. And he owns everything. And you are invited to be his daughter, his son. And when you say yes and you trust him, you have access to everything that he owns. And he will supply your needs, not necessarily your wants. And here's what's interesting. The closer you get to God, the more you want what he wants for you. And the more you give, the more you'll see he gives back to you. We're invited to become givers as God has given to us. Now, the early church believed Jesus, and they lived with this abundant mindset. They had a radical, generous spirit. I read from Acts chapter 2, well, in the year 113 AD, there was a Roman governor who was very concerned at the fast spread of Christianity, and so he wrote to the emperor Trajan. He was concerned because these followers of Jesus were loving and serving and caring for the poor, downtrodden, the slaves, the sick, the disabled, and he hated that. Listen to what he wrote. For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition, faith in Jesus, has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. He was so concerned, he referenced followers of Jesus were like a virus infecting everyone around them. No one is safe. Even the women and children could be affected by this virus. And so the cure to this virus, this Roman governor and the Roman empire would torture followers of Jesus. This governor in particular was known to have tortured two female slaves who were called deaconesses. They were leaders within the early church because they would not renounce Jesus and worship the emperor and yet it still spread. The early church was filled with givers like Jesus because they realized they had nothing to lose, so they feared nothing. 50 years later, we 
We know that in 165 AD, a terrible plague swept through the Roman Empire, killing up to one-thirds of the residents of many cities. Historian Rodney Stark writes that the pagan priests and doctors fled, but the Christians stayed and cared for the sick, willing to give everything just like Jesus, their Lord, had done. And Stark notes, while Aristotle taught that the gods cared nothing about human beings, you go out of the temple of Isis and nobody said, give your money to help the poor. Stark notes, what Christianity gave to the world was nothing less than a new vision of what it means to be a human being. That's why the church grew by 40% per year for the next 400 years. In fact, we see in the year 300, why faith continued to spread. In a letter to Diognetius, it says this, with regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, Christians follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign, whether it's Dallas or Austin. I added that. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. See, what he's describing is a spiritual change, an internal transformation. It's not a material change that happened. They were destitute. They were poor. They were persecuted, and yet people saw them as a new type of human. Do people see you in that regard? Do they look at your life and think, this is... This is so countercultural. This is so different than what I see. Or have you been trapped by the mundane and the mediocrity that our world offers? Do you find yourself afraid and worried, never having enough, slipping into a scarcity mentality, tempted to become a taker because you never seem to have enough? Or are you willing to trust God even in this area of your life? The way of God's kingdom produces givers. Givers always have more than enough to give. Jesus gave everything. He paid it forward. He gave his very life so that we could have abundant life now and forever. And he founded the church on this principle. Matthew 10, 8. Freely you have received, so freely give. Jesus calls us to become givers for our own good. Now, something I think is sad is that because of TV preachers and maybe misunderstandings from the church with which you grew up, or just because of it's so different, what Jesus says about money is so different than what our culture says, that some come into this place and it's completely understandable that you might even have this idea, well, the church is always after my money. And you may be thinking, look, I only come once twice a year, Easter, Christmas, and now you're talking about giving for Christmas. But let me just say that you can come for as long as you want and never give a thing. This is a gift for you, and we mean that. We'll take care of your children, help them grow in their faith. We'll help you in your struggles personally or in marriage with recovery. 
We are here to serve you. You can even have a donut or a taco and never give a dime, right? But you know, that's not actually how the rest of the world works. I mean, the grocery store, they're really out to get your money. You can go in and pick out whatever you want and you cannot leave without paying for it. You know, the gym, the gym is out to get your money. Even if you don't go, they still take it out of your bank account. The school is out to get your money. Now, they kind of trick you, right? Because you pay for it with property taxes, but you're paying for everybody else's children to go to school. Or maybe you're paying for private school. You can't just go in and say, hey, you know what? I was thinking this year, my kid wants to do daycare for free. Is that all right? They will not let you do that. Everything is out for your money. But because of the generosity of so many people in this room, we can do this and what we do throughout the week as a gift to you and to our city. Because we're called to be generous givers. Freely we've received and so we grow to know God and trust God and then freely give, paying it forward to others. So many of you have been so generous. And I wanna invite those of you who are still struggling in this area of trusting God to consider what if What if you grew to the point where you could trust God to where you saw how blessed you are, that you begin to enjoy what you have, you begin to experience the beauty of generosity. That's God's heart for us. 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes his young protege, Timothy, and says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. We're to enjoy the gifts that God has given us. And we're to enjoy sharing those gifts with others. It's not out of obligation. God's inviting us to be a cheerful giver but we need to stop trusting in money more than we trust in God. See, God richly gives and wants us to enjoy all that he's given and to give out a gratitude for what he's given us. But to become generous people, we have to simply learn by doing it. If you aren't careful, you'll fall into this trap. Well, once I make this much money, then I'll really start giving. But it's a trap because you'll always need a little bit more before you'll feel comfortable. It's all about, do you trust God? Do you want to become a generous person? See, God gave us a path to grow, to become generous. He gives us training wheels in the Hebrew scriptures to teach us to trust his promises and his economy. Says this in Deuteronomy 14, you must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all the crops you harvest each year. Bring this tithe to the designated places of worship. Now, the word tithe means 10%. And so people of faith were invited to take that first 10% and give it to God through your local storehouse, through their local temple, through your local church. And you may be thinking, that's crazy. I'm barely making it on what I have now. I could never do that. Well, that is the mentality of scarcity rather than a mentality of abundance. It's a, it's a fear mentality based on 
what this world teaches rather than a mentality of faith. Now, when the Israelites gave in to fear and stopped tithing, God reminded them of another way, this way of abundance. Malachi 3 says, should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me out of the tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant. So what is the curse? The curse is no matter how much you get, you never feel like it's enough. Always living in need, living in want. But God says, test me. This is the only time in the scriptures he says, test me. Just try it and see how I might provide for you. Matthew 23, Jesus reiterates this. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. See, we're not invited to do so out of obligation. It's not something we just do because we feel guilty. It's something we do because we trust God and we live lives of justice and faith and mercy. Many of us have chosen to trust Jesus in this area and we're living in this kingdom of, of abundance. And that's how we've been able to do what we've done over the years. When I was in Los Angeles, I was at a church called Mosaic and the pastor there, his name's Erwin McManus. And I remember he was describing this idea of resourcing our work, the kingdom work through our local church. And a, a guy raised his hand and said, well, is this a law church or a grace church? He was implying this idea of tithing is a archaic law from the Hebrew scriptures, no longer need to be followed. And Erwin said this, he said, oh, we're a grace church. He said, the law says, do not commit murder. But grace says, you should not even have anger in your heart towards another person. The law says, do not commit adultery. But grace says, you should not even have lust in your heart towards another person. The law says, give 10%, but grace says, you can give 20, 30, 40, 50%. But grace is never less than the law. Every time we have a message like this, and it's not very often, we always get these remarkable responses. Even just now out in the lobby after the first service, someone came up to me and she said, you know, about six months ago, I decided I'm gonna trust God and start giving the first 10%. And I wasn't sure how I would make it. And now God has continued to surprise me. She said, I was living life with my clenched fist, trying to hold on to everything I had. And it's like now that I've opened my hands, I can't hold all that he's given me. A woman in my life group, said, as we talked about this a couple weeks ago, she said, you know, it was always hard for me to, to think about giving 10%. That seemed like so much. But then when I remembered that actually God gave me 100% of all that I have, and he's letting me keep 90% of it, it helped reframe everything for me. There was a, a man from India who started coming to Gateway and came to faith. His name's Peru. And after coming to faith, he decided to try to trust God in this arena. But the problem was the tech company that he helped start was on the verge of laying off 50 employees because a funder was about to pull out. 
but he decided to start giving anyway. And just before Christmas, just before he was supposed to do these layoffs, the funder confirmed they were gonna help after all and even gave enough money that they could give back pay to all the employees, including the 50 that almost lost their job. I could tell you story after story of a pay raise, a new job, an inheritance, or maybe the most remarkable, learning to live on less. Sometimes when you give sacrificially, you just have to live a little bit less. In fact, we have a class in the new year called Financial Peace University. If you're interested in that, we'd love for you to be a part of it. Sundays at four, starts January 13th. Just send an email to southaustin at gatewaychurch.com and we'll send you the details. But I can tell you from my own experience, I want you to experience God's miraculous provision. My wife and I, we wrestled with money and how to spend it and how to save it. And, and about six years ago or so, we finally got on the same page on this because she has, has her number one love language, gift giving. She's incredibly generous. I, on the other hand, did not even know gift giving was a love language. And so with a scarcity mentality with which I was raised, I've joked before that I'm part German, part Scottish, and all tightwad. That's kind of my ethnic background. But I, I've come to experience God can be trusted, even in this area. And it's a really hard area. I think it's very hard because it's a God in our country. I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's from Kenya. He's lived in the United States the last 10 years. And as a child in Kenya, he grew up longing to one day move to America. He lived in a, a little village in a hut, had to walk a long way to school and a long way to get water. And he just dreamed of America where they had sinks and plumbing. And then he moves here, starts a family here, has kids here, and he cannot wait to go back to Kenya. Over mortgage, working three jobs, trying to keep up, kids always on their electronics, thinking how easier it was to be in Kenya than it is here. See, we think we have so much, but in many ways we have obstacles that others don't have. And so I want to invite you into perhaps a new way of thinking, a new way of living, rather than a scarcity mentality, a mentality of generosity. For some of us, I want you to pray about and consider what if God is asking you to tithe, give that first 10% to God through the local church. And if you're not from here, Choose a different church. It doesn't have to be through Gateway, but just see if God might not provide or grow. If you're already giving 10%, see if you can give 11 or 12 or live on 80%. Or perhaps God might lead you to give above and beyond. Maybe even this week, somebody sold stock and gave all the proceeds to what God is doing here. There are ways that, that perhaps God has blessed you, that he wants that blessing to Pass on to others. And all of us, no matter what you may give, be giving now, I, I want to encourage you to consider the 1% challenge. Giving an extra 1% of your income towards what we anticipate God wants to do in our new campuses. When you came in on the chairs around you was a card, the 1% challenge. To give towards what we're doing, just go to gatewaychurch.com slash challenge to read more about the 1% challenge. To give towards what we're doing here, just text the word Gateway to 77977. 
Or perhaps your next step is just to begin this relationship with God or to begin again. I want you to ask God, God, what is my next step? How do you want me to trust you a little bit more today?